Hello and welcome to yet another episode of one of your favorite shows, I'm sure, Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin, here with my effervescent co-host, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, tell me the good news. The good news? Uh, I don't have great news. You have great news. You went to Origins. You got to go to a convention. I I did. I was a convention goer. The first time I've been back to Origins since... I want to say 2019, but it might have even been uh, past that. Wow. But yeah. it was a convention. Yeah, it was a it convention. Was. It definitely did it did not rival the days back when the Adventurers League was there running 80 tables of the D&D Open, and there were banners and costumes and, and all sorts of yeah. things. And yeah, that that's just the AL side. Even throughout the rest of the convention... Uh, two of the largest vendors that were in the vendor hall were Arcane Wonder and World of Game Design. Huh? I mean, congratulations and, to you know, them. Those are, but, uh, yeah. But right, that's surprising. Right, exactly. And so I, yeah. Exactly. So you know, I talked to uh, both Arcane Wonder and World of Game Design, and the consensus was, yeah, it's great that we are like the largest vendor here. Uh, World of Game Design was running adventures and manning booths on behalf of several uh companies so uh, mm. modifius and uh Mjorkborg and you know many companies were being represented by world of game design arcane wonder is a is a good you know card and board game company obviously and but they were like you know it might be better if we weren't the biggest mm. vendors here because that just shows where where this place is going. Yeah. And all of the vendors that weren't at uh, Origins seem to be attending uh, Gen Con. So Paizo and Wizards and right, all of those yeah. were yeah. Uh, were lacking uh, from from Origins. So but yeah. we'll see. We'll see if but it I, continues to grow. I, I am interested uh, along those lines, since you mentioned Wizards, like I haven't heard a single thing about the next summit. Um, curious kind of what's in the works though um mm. and i forget whether we have it in our show notes i don't think i do so i'll mention it now which is that i saw that um daniel kwan had a review of the virtual tabletop because apparently the digital attendees of the first summit those people who are virtual and not in person mm. were the first round of invitees to play test the latest version of the virtual tabletop mm -hmm. um and so on his blog he has a write-up of kind of what he found i think i meant to include that in the show notes i forgot so talking about it now but that's interesting because i guess there has been some involvement there but but you know nothing that i've heard in terms of saying like hey here's what's going on at gen con yeah yeah i mean we as we've reported before that next summit was supposed to be taking place or is supposed to be taking place at origins but i have not heard anyone any invitees, if they have been invited, they Gen have Con. not let that be known at this point. Or Gen Con, yeah. I'm going to mix up every word. I'm going to say <laughs> everything backwards, so just be ready for that. But Fair. Gen Con isn't that far away. Gen, Gen Con is like a month oh. and a half uh, or less. Pax West. So, All around yeah, the corner. Boom. It's, uh, it's coming up quickly. But I had fun at Origins. I went expecting to run some 5e content uh, officially for Ghost Fair Gaming when I then realized that we weren't actually running official 
Ghostfire Gaming content at Origins. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was asked by folks at World of Game Design to run some 2D20 Star Trek adventures. They said, could you run this? And I said, "I my name is in the book. So, yes, I guess I have to say I can <laughs> run it. And and it was run. And I think everybody had a good time. I'm and I sure. think I got the rules right about 90% of the time. So we will call that a, a victory. And to tell you the truth, you know, you come away from convention sometimes drained and sometimes invigorated. And I came away from this one invigorated. Wow. Uh, you know, it, I was working a lot back at the hotel room on some deadlines, but I did get to run. I did get to have those conversations with a few industry people who, who, you know, I haven't met before or who I'm, I'm fast friends with. And I came away really ready to get to work. So I, I felt like that was worth it. That's awesome. Good. Invigorated Sean, exactly what we need. And invigorated and i am so invigorated that we're going to only answer one uh question from our listener corner however it is a doozy it is a really really good question sort of calling me out a little bit and, and I'm, I'm i'm cool with that so uh john andrew belner via youtube says sean and everyone else on the internet always mentions quote slowing down the game but it's always after talking about something that is at least for me part of the game like searching for things like secret doors in every dungeon room. Saying that slows down the game is literally taking away big pieces of some player character function and purpose. Combat slows down the game. We could skip that. What kind of game are people playing that skips over or hand waves so much? Honest question. And yeah, John, I take it as an honest question and I don't you know, I don't feel called out. And I feel like that's what I like to hear. I like to hear a little pushback. And so let me start by saying there is a difference, I think, between slowing down the game and slowing down the game too much. Um, there's also a potential problem that people rarely talk about with running a game that goes too quickly. Mm-hmm. So slowing down the game is really an, an inelegant way of saying making the game or the story tedious for yourself or for your players. Now we put in the caveat that everyone wants something different from the game. So one person's beautiful pace is another person's horrible slog or sprint. But what your question gets to is a fundamental one to not just D and D, but role-playing game design. And I feel like I should do a whole video on this (laughs) now, but, but I'm going to try to tackle it this way. And I, I'm going to get rambling on Teo. So Mm -hmm. while you take a big drink, uh, feel free to interject at any point. So let's take an example of listening and thinking at the same time. Yep. And thinking at the same. Okay. So the, the example John gives up is searching for secret doors in every dungeon room. So let me give an example and show and illustrate the issues, the conundrum that we're in as role-playing game designers. The characters are searching for missing folks who were last seen in the vicinity of a haunted mansion, supposedly haunted mansion. So you get the idea. You get the curse of Strahd, Strahd Castle, uh, you know, so, so that sort of thing, a big castle. Yeah. Uh, so the characters go into the mansion and begin looking through the rooms for clues. What happened to these missing people? So they come to a bedroom, maybe the first room. Maybe they go right upstairs. First bedroom they come to. Here we go. They go in and the DM says in this bedroom, maybe there's a uh, subscription. Maybe there's a description. 
there's a bed. There's a set of drawers. There's a desk with many compartments. There's a large painting of the family who owned it. There's an ornate rug on the floor. There's a dumbwaiter in the wall. And then not to mention candelabras and, and other things. So here's a situation where the players are presented with, with this encounter, uh, this area. How is this handled by the game? What do the rules of D&D tell us for the, the characters who are about to search that room? They really don't. They really don't tell us specifically as DMs how to handle that. Do you have the characters inspect each feature of the room individually? I search the bed. I search the chest of drawers. I search the desk. Or do you have them search each wall individually, each floor individually, the ceiling individually? Is it by five foot sections? Is it by 10 foot sections? Is it now if you have a single investigation or perception check, because really the game doesn't tell us exactly which to use, so we end up using both. If you have a single one to cover the entire room, that's great. That might be perfect for your group. However, what if everyone fails? What happens then? Oh, I just we just so happens everyone fails this check, which will happen. We've all been there as DMs. That's happened. So what do what do we do then? Well, what we'd normally do then is the players not wanting to miss anything say, well, I will individually check the bed. I will. So we're moving like closer and closer to success. So do you allow that? You've already made the check. You've already failed. Okay. So we're going to allow this now. So we've already had six roles that have led nowhere and we're moving now to these individual things. Okay, cool. Uh, so they start investigating these features. Do we roll checks on each and every item? Mm. Do we? Do you have a check for the bed? Oh, these first three people failed that check. Oh, but the fourth person made it. Okay. <laughs> do you then say under the covers, what about the pillow? Do you specifically make people guess what they're going to check? And, and, and the pillow, uh, okay, the so pillow we do, is a great we don't, example. We don't know. I just interject here. The pillow is a great example right. because there have been adventures in AD&D and Basic that have mm -hmm. said, only if the characters search the pillows or the hollow leg in the bed, right? So you had to call it, which mm -hmm. caused that behavior that you're talking about, right? Okay. And so now we're getting the situation where we're just basically rolling until people succeed. And if they don't succeed, we find more ways of letting them check more or uh, just giving them the, the thing. So you're setting up an example of play and this becomes the example of how it's going to work in every room. What if there are five bedrooms in this house? Then the next time you go to a bedroom, you are, you are facilitating this kind of play. Now, what if there's nothing special at all in the room? What if the description you gave was what's there at face value? Now, all of those checks, even if they succeed, lead to nothing. So do you just say to the players, don't bother rolling checks. There's nothing in the room. That's okay. Except for the next room they go to, when you describe the room and they wait for you to say, don't roll any checks. There's nothing in the room. And you don't say anything. <laughs> now they know there's something in the room. So now they all dive in as, as they did before. 
And again, all of this is possibly okay. And all of this is possibly horrible, depending on the group that you play with. Mm -hmm. Since the rules don't specify exactly how to do it, it becomes up to the adventure designer or the DM to figure this out. And that that's good in some ways because the DM knows the DM has a better chance of knowing the player types and the player desires than an adventure writer or even a rules designer. However, are 20 plus checks per room good storytelling? <laughs> Is that good game design? Mm -hmm. uh, many, not all, but many would say no. Now, maybe John's group, maybe John and John's players uh, love this. Maybe they love this nitty gritty. We are going to think about and mention every single thing in the room, and we are going to touch on each individually. For those of us who have been playing since AD&D times, that's sort of how it used to be. Mm -hmm. But games change, times change, audiences change. And I would say it is a vast minority of players that want that level of detail. I think it, that would tend to bog things down. So those are the things that you as a game designer have to think about, not when you're designing an adventure, when you're designing a game. Wouldn't it be great if the game told us exactly how to do it? And then we would be gamifying it so the player characters who are investing resources into being good at that will actually benefit from being good at that. And those who don't won't, but it's, it's, uh, it's also hard because a lot of times you want to reward success. Yeah. So if players are searching something and they roll a success, you want to say, yes, you want to say, oh, you searched the bed. You got a 20 on your investigation check. It's, it's hard to say no to that. It's hard to say no, but if you get into the habit of letting players search every single thing and they succeed every single time and you're saying no, 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 that has a bad feeling yeah. to it. But if you feel if you feel the need to say yes, 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 then what are you giving the characters? What are you giving them for that yes? What do players want? Players want magic. Players want treasure. Players want clues that are important to this. So now you're in the position as a DM, if you feel the need to say yes, to give them a magic item, to give them some gold, to give them something important. Well, there's only only so many important things you can give until you, you have a uh, group of second level players, second level characters with every common and uncommon <laughs> magic item in the book because they've succeeded on so many checks. Me so back to high school. all of this... Exactly, exactly. So all of this swirling mass of of wanting the game to be fun, wanting the story to be fun, wanting it to move at the pace that your group wants is is a wildly divergent and horribly hard to achieve goal. Uh, so that's that's the idea yeah. of why I say you could really slow things down. Um, yeah, and, and I, I have tell us now that I've ranted yeah, for a yeah. long time. No, this is great. I love it. I have two. Two. This makes me think of two different things. One is uh, when I first played the Moat House, right from Temple of Mental Evil uh, Hamlet, um, and this was early in my dungeoneering advent, uh, career. Right, I, I was very young, uh, middle school, 
And every room just felt like it was, you know, a knife's edge of decisions. And what I didn't know is these Mm -hmm. rooms were all empty. This first hallway is just completely empty. Mm -hmm. But room after room, we would do things. And I was a big part of this. Like I was kind of the, 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 I was taking the lead in this. I'd like throw a stone in to see if anything reacted. And then you'd ask Mm -hmm. yourself, did nothing happen because there's nothing in the room or because they know? And they're waiting for it. So then I would do something else. And then I'd finally get in and I'd like separate the furniture from the wall and look in this thing and specify. And, and then I'd do it again in the next room. And at some point, someone said, all right, dude, stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, too much. Exactly. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is back yeah. then the game was made to where it could threaten you. And it almost, it did re- really reward that behavior, right? Right. And... You know, as soon as as soon as someone says, dude, stop doing that. The next room is the room where you needed to do that or you miss something. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that's that's the pro- that's the problem with the game, with yeah. the story, with with all of it trying to come together. And there's just no one way to make everyone happy. Well, and there's no one way to make it perfect. Well, and I think where that's where the game does try to make some attempts, right? So the game had this whole, like, you can take all this time to search a room and in, in AD&D. Mm-hmm. And then it had the, but an elf walking by to sort of make it better, right? An elf might just notice it. Mm-hmm. The reality is in play, it still meant you were spending forever searching things. All your spells ran out, all this stuff. It just took forever to search. And after, you know, months of this, you usually came up with something and this translated to where like all of the players that I used to play with in third edition, uh, who are all old time players, then uh, we would say to the DM, okay, we're going to do door routine alpha door routine. Alpha is the following, mm-hmm. you know, so-and-so is going to go up to the door and listen to it. So-and-so is going to go up and check for traps. So-and-so is going to open the door while the rest of us step back. That's alpha. You cool with it? Just saying we do door routine alpha and the DM would be like, yeah, sure. And so we just say, cool, door routine alpha will always be used unless we tell you otherwise. And then we could just skip that part, right? They, we don't have to make checks. He could just have us make a check every now and then if he wanted to or whatever she wanted to, just they want to. Mm-hmm. Just easy to kind of handle that way because it didn't make sense to it. Every door in a complex state things over and over again, right? And that, that was what we were trying to avoid. And that's that idea of that, what did the players want? What do players, you know, how does it impact the pacing? These are all good questions. Mm-hmm. In general, I think where, where you're coming from that, that, you know, John reacted to is, in general, we see the game is trying to get out of situations that are going to be highly repetitive with low payoff. Mm-hmm. Right? That's mm-hmm. where this yeah. is. It, it's from that understanding of pacing and understanding of what the game is fun. The game is becoming more of heroic, more about your backstory and the plot and the whatever and less about did you find the secret door and it's why we when we did our review of knight's black agents the gumshoe system assumes you will find things like this unless you're in a pressure situation right being shot at find the secret door make a check but otherwise you have a knowledge of architecture or of something like this you know ancient places you just find it and the interesting thing that we do as dms is not hide a door it's the story behind finding the door and what it tells us about the place. And that's what's an interesting and important. Yeah. So one of the things that D&D could do in, say, a revised version of 5e 
is to set up a system that helps gamify, that helps players do this and make characters that would succeed more than others. So rather than just saying, yes, you find everything or saying you have to make checks on every single thing, you could say when, when a party searches an area, choose a primary person. Uh, their check can be assisted by others. And then from top to bottom, list the most important things in the room that are hidden. Clues, treasure, whatever. Oh, they, they did four successes. They get the top four things on the list. That would gamify it, mm-hmm. but it would also take the onus away from players and DMs to search every single thing. It would move the story along, put the most important clues on top. Uh, but again, that would work for me. There, I'm sure there are some people out there saying, no, that's, that's a terrible <laughs> idea. Um, and I like to do it. Just give me everything. That's okay too. Yeah. Uh, but that takes away the players who build a character to find things. So you, there's no yeah, right no. answer, just a lot of wrong answers. <laughs> and I think that's where you have to, the game should think through what are the common ways that people are using our rules and therefore what should they look like, but also talk to people about that variance and, and why these things exist, right? Because we can all look at the map for barrier peaks and realize that if the players are making a check, and every single one of those hundreds of little rooms that are all the same, it's going to be a boring session. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, John, thank you for the question. I hope that clarifies at least where we're coming from. I think Teos did a good job of saying that. And thank you for continuing the conversation. Now we have some news. News, I say. Mm. First if you have paid attention to Larian Games recently, you know that they are the designers of the Baldur's Gate 3 video game. And they have just put up an online game where you can search for a murderer who is loose in Baldur's Gate. So you you have to... Well, you can anyone can access this, and we have a link in the show notes. It's bloodinbaldursgate.larian.com. And... It allows you to search for this murderer by clicking on a map and going to various sites, sites that are unlocked, you have access to. Then after you have done your due diligence and searching, you can vote along with everyone else who's playing to decide which site on the map to unlock next. So you can only investigate unlocked sites. But to vote, you have to sign in with a Larian account. So if you don't have one, you need to give them your information in order to make one to vote. Uh, I checked it out really quick. There's a little video that explains how to use it at the at the site. Uh, did you take a look at it, Teos? I, I started to, and then I got distracted. Then I had too many things to write and design over the weekend. So I have not. Yeah. But it's it's sitting here on my browser staring at me uh, You know, to someday yeah. do. Exactly. It seems fun. What I didn't yep. understand is, so, is this yeah. sort of, is it kind of like, at the end, is there a pot of gold? Is this like a contest? You know what I mean? I am t- honestly not sure okay. because yeah. the voting aspect means they're only unlocking the areas in Baldur's Gate that people vote highest for. Yeah. And then when you go there, it sort of tells you what's there, gives you the NPCs, some things. It also, had you have a sort of character that has uh, 
right now when I look, they had like a token of speak with dad and a couple other objects. Uh, but I don't know if that's an individual character or the character that everyone is playing uh, as the investigator. So the votes tell this investigator where to go. Um, I yeah, There wasn't a good description right at the top of sort of what's at stake and, and how mm-hmm. to do it. Um, so it was a little unclear. It, I mean, yeah. it, it's beautiful. The site's beautiful. <laughs> it looks fun. Yeah. So I just don't have the time to right. fully go through it. If you do go through it, uh, let us know how it works for you. Cause I, I am curious and I may jump into it at some point, but, but it's a neat idea. And I'm curious whether at the end of it, there's any sort of like reward or something like that, because uh, like when there was the whole find out, who has lost their memory uh, thing that took place like on Twitter. And then it involved gaming stores. And w- one of my friends was heavily involved in it. And, and he ended up getting like a USB key, a special key that had been given out to a gaming store mm-hmm. in his area. And, uh, and, and he has that really awesome, like D and D logo USB key that had on it, the clue. And he, he had to go to a, a gaming store and give a password. And then they handed it over him. Right. It was really cool. And he's one of like, you know, five wow. people to do that, which was really neat, um, scattered around the U.S. So, it was, you know, that was a fun contest and and, and there were rewards and things like that. So cool. That's awesome. Origins has ended. So the Origin Award winners have been announced. We have all the winners in our show notes here. And there's also a link to that uh, announcement. Some of note was Origins fan favorite is Flamecraft by Lucky Duck Games. The board game winners were Creature Comforts by Kids Table Board Gaming in the Social and Light Strategy. Uh, Strategy game was Planet Unknown by Adam's Apple Games. Board games thematic was Dead Reckoning by Alderac Entertainment Group, AEG. Uh, Card game was Scout. Children's game was Honk. On the RPG side, Coyote and Crow um, from Coyote and Crow Publishing won RPG Core. RPG Supplement was Agents of Dune by by Modifius. Um, 2D Art was Cowboys with Big Hearts by Bully Pulpit Games. 3D Art was Fallout Wasteland Warfare, also by Modifius. And a few others up there as well. Very cool. I'm going to... I'm going to let you take over the Diana Jones Award finalists. Yeah, so the next award we can talk about is is the Diana Jones Award, which is probably our industry's quirkiest award. It is deliberately opinionated. It boldly looks at products, people, and even concepts that other awards wouldn't consider. So I was looking back at some of the old web pages. Ajit George won last year, right? A person. Uh, the concept of mm-hmm. black excellence in gaming won in 2020, and the concept of actual play won in 2018. But other years have seen uh, people and RPGs win the award. So this year we have a number of finalists mm-hmm. that are interesting. We had Linda Kodega, who was the journalist that um, for io9 and Gizmodo that covered the OGL probably closer than any other uh, individual. Uh, and I'll, I'll add more to that later, but we'll we'll go on to the next one. Uh, again, Coyote and Crow, a role-playing game by Connor Alexander that looks at what if in this alternate universe there was no horror of colonialism and we put into the foreground of the game the traditions and cultures of Native American people in this world and working with those actual real-world people to create this game and encourage, encourage players to imagine stories that challenge that sort of Western canon behind it. 
uh, Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. We've talked about this before, and we interviewed Edge George on the show. Um, it, it, you know, incredible project with nearly 50 creators of color and transcending that idea of the typical Eurocentric fantasy with complex stories that were based off of the authors being said, you know, bring in your culture into this and create this radiant citadel that's sort of a myriad of, of stories and perspectives. Uh, Rosenstress, role-playing game by Moria Turkenton and Jessica Hammer by Unruly Designs. It is a tabletop freeform scenario. I had not heard of this. It sounds fascinating. Strongly defined historical story weaving the lives of four pairs of men and women bound by love under the chokehold of Nazi Germany. And you basically play through two characters to develop ties as the clock ticks forward and brings all of these impacts to you with personal losses and tests to your marriage and ideologies and things like that. It has some really innovative mechanics, well-researched, treats the topic with deep respect. Sounds fascinating. Not my kind of emotional roller coaster, but uh, but for those who can handle that, really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, Cole Werdle, a game designer, world. I'm sure the pronunciation of the last name. Sorry, Cole. A game designer. I think it's Werdle. Werdle. Uh, director Whirly. of Leader Games, co-founder of uh, Werdle Gig. Werdle Gig. Games. Mm-hmm. From largely commercial work like Root and Oath to his work on Pax Pamir and other historical games, doing some of the finest work in board game design. So you can see, link in our show notes or go to dianajonesaward.org to see all of those finalists and read about them. One thing that I thought was really interesting, I can't help but saying as the opinionated person that I am, was Linda Kodeg on Twitter, where they started a thread kind of saying like, it sounded to me like, I should win this <laughs> and kind of walking through step by step the story of the OGL and, and sort of basically saying like, I caused the OGL to go the way it did and for the indie to end up in the creative commons. And I thought it was really interesting and ties into, you know, I have in the past talked about journalism in this day and age and how different it is from the journalism we grew up with. Because this is something a journalist would never have done, right? A, a journalist, in when we grew up, would never promote their action behind a story. They silently drive the story, and the story speaks for itself. And I, and I thought it was really interesting. And, and the caution that I would raise here is that I have seen many times in our industry where someone, including myself, has had the hubris to think that they made something happen. And then later you see actually all these other folks were involved in it and caused it to happen also, if not instead of. Um, And I can think of any number of examples, um, many of which I can't share, where someone said that they had done a thing, but I knew it was really because of some other reason, right? Or someone said to me, I thought I'd done this. And then it Mm -hmm. turned out that it was a corporate decision or totally unrelated. Um, so I just, you know, anybody out there, I would just say, be careful about assuming that you have been the sole agent of change for any one issue in our industry. Mm-hmm. I My stance on awards in general are well known, so I do not need to add anything <laughs> else to what Teos has said. Uh, congratulations to all of mm-hmm. the nominees. Yeah, and that's not to take away from uh, the good we're work Americans. being done. <laughs> Exactly. 
exactly. Uh, we we are uh, we're Americans, you and I, Teos. I I believe. Yes. Um, yes, I have two passports. One of them would, is would you, an American passport. They, they go. Would Would you say you are neutral? Good. I actually would. Yeah. How about you? You would. Okay. Well, well, I I don't believe in alignments, um, so I think <laughs> I am every alignment depending on the situation that I'm in. Wow. So uh, that's what a chaotic neutral person. According would say. to precisely, so a YouGov UK study from March of 2021 asked 24,000 Americans two questions. Those questions were used to determine where they fell on the alignment table. So this followed an earlier British study of Brits being asked the same question. And 29% of the Americans based on this study were considered to be neutral good. The second largest was lawful good, 21%. So there, that's 60% right there uh, covering 50%, no, yeah, 50% right there, neutral good and lawful good. Uh, True neutral came in at 13%. 11% came in at chaotic neutral. And the article also varied by generation. And Teos can take over from here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, young generations favor neutral groups. If you're uh, chaotic neutral, well, 60% of millennial or adult members of Gen Z were chaotic neutral. Uh, older generations favor the good groups. I thought that was interesting versus neutrality. Chaotic groups tend to be male dominated. Women tend towards lawful neutral. Under 1% are in each of the evil categories. But, you know, Sean, I got to wonder, like, maybe they didn't reach enough CEOs. Yeah, it's true. Of those 24,000 Americans, probably very few multimillionaires <laughs> or billionaires were uh, were in that study and may, may have uh, come in in some of the lower yeah. three of this grid. And uh, yeah, it's it's just fascinating. Uh, it was, and there's a link in our show notes there you, where you can look at that report. Yeah, and of course, you know, asking someone what they think they are is much different from uh, figuring out yeah. what they actually are. Character yep. is who you are in the dark. So <laughs> there you go. I like that. The uh, high cost of art was covered in a blog article article by Chris Bissett, where he examined the uh, art in role-playing game books from the, from the perspective of a small publisher or creator. Uh, you covered this more in depth than I did, Teo, so sure. take it away. It's fascinating. I mean, basically what he's doing is he's saying, we have this drive from, you know, books like fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons that are so gorgeous that tend to propel everybody, all especially consumers, to think this is how books must be. And so he started with sort of these expectations by asking people, I think primarily on Twitter, what do you think about art? And it essentially translated to a piece of art per two-page spread. Right? So you're opening the book and you're seeing at least one piece of art. Um, so then he goes back and he says, well, what's the cost of that? Right? If we break down that you want a full-color cover and you want... Four, pay, four full page illustrations and 14 pieces of spot art, all for just a 40 page product. And he works that out to say that this 40 page product would cost about $2,350 to create just for the art, right? We're not talking about layout and talking about editing or writing or any of that. And then he says, well, what's it take to break even on that? 
So you'd have to sell 360 copies on drive through to break even. And he says, well, what's the metal percentage, right? And well, very few products reach that. But, you know, what if we talk about print publishing? Uh, art is expanding the number of pages, the cost of printing and mailing. So he looks at this example with the $2,350 and says, well, that's spent on the art. Now you have to print it. That adds $350 for a total of around $2,700, not including all the other costs. And for those 200 copies, the only way to be mm-hmm. profitable is to have a $13.50 price for the 40-page product. But wait a minute. What if you have retail and distribution? Now you're really only getting half of that. So your product has to cost $27 to break even. And then he looks at things like, well, what if you could talk about the actual cost of writing? And just even at 10 cents a word and how this all works, um, looks at and he, he really breaks it down. Right. He looks at like, well, what if we reduce the print cost and we do this percentage digital, this percentage? It's really fascinating. I invite everybody to look at our show notes and his actual blog uh, where he goes into great detail for all of it. All of it is basically terrible. <laughs> Whichever way you look at it, it's you're asking yeah. what he's he sent. His basic point is consumers are asking us to spend an amount on our product that is almost doomed, is statistically doomed to fail, right? So he says like 7.2% of all drive-through products sell over 250 copies. So for one of the strategies here, you know, just kind of almost impossible. Um, And he also cites the story of Jason Bullman, who works at Paizo, one of the top guys at Paizo. And Jason shared on Twitter the cost of an adventure that he published for Pathfinder. This is his own project, right? Just to make extra scratch on the side. So he spent, Jason spent $2,500 without counting his own time, which he said was over 80 hours. Jason said he needed 384 sales at $10 for this adventure uh, to break even through drive through or 600 to cover his time, right? So either 384 or 600, depending on whether you include time or not. Currently, the product is copper, so he has fewer than 100 sales, and he's the lead designer at Paizo. And he needed three, so he's, he's not a third of the way to what he needs to cover his costs. Mm-hmm. And so when we, when, we, when we talk about Wizards of the Coast raising its prices as being a good thing, like we were saying, that allows other publishers to be able to Make a product that the pl- people want, seem to want, and pay a price for it that is commiserate with the cost to create. This doesn't include mailing. This doesn't include so many other things that we didn't even touch on. Uh, it's yeah. expensive to create a print product, and the industry has been stuck in this well, it only cost nine ninety nine in 1980 to buy a module. Why am I paying, you know, $20 for it now for a lot of reasons? Yeah. And, and those old adventures were like 10 pages long. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so finally, let's talk about crowdfunding. Let's talk about new releases Congratulations, Cobalt Press. More than a million dollars for Tales of the Valiant, 
Uh, the Kickstarter ended a few days ago, and it was at $1,151,914 with over 10,000 backers, 10,057. Wow. What do you think, Taos? I mean, you know what did it. We had Celeste on our show. I mean, it's the Mastering Dungeons bump. That was it. It's obvious. I mean, yeah. I think I checked. I'm sure the the nearly half. Yeah, I'm sure the nearly, you know, well over half a million dollars they made within the first three days before Celeste came on the show was people future, uh, seeing the future and knowing that she was going to be on the show. Uh, No, that's great news for everybody at Cobalt Press and everybody involved in the project. So congratulations. Um, And the Ethereal Expanse is still in Kickstarter mode uh, for for Ghostfire Gaming. So uh, we do appreciate uh, at Ghostfire everyone's support so far. You still have a couple weeks to back it if you so choose but i hope that you do check it out fantastic yeah and I just anything got, else uh, taos i just on got the, a, on the empty news. black's latest magic item book uh arrived in my inbox uh from my having mm-hmm. backed that i'm excited to look at it i haven't yet and i just saw a tweet from wizards just a few moments ago talking about the practically complete guide to dragons which you can pre-order now and it looks like a one of those neat books that's not necessarily game uh specific but has a lot of art neat background information and so on for the D fans out there so we will keep an eye on that as well with all of that covered we will now get to our main topic today here on mastering dungeons we are looking at part two of chapter five of the dungeon master's guide This is on Adventure Environments, the Wilderness. As you well know, if you are a full-time listener here, we are covering the Dungeon Master's Guide from cover to cover to look at the 2014 version and talk about what we might see in the 2024 version of the Dungeon Master's Guide as Teos shows us his spokesmodel career uh, in in full steam showing you the book. That's right. I'm terrible. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, So last time, like I said, we talked about the first part of Chapter 5, which talked about creating your dungeons, the dungeon environment. Now we are getting into Part 2, which is the wilderness environment. And, yeah, let's start by saying what they say. Between the dungeons and settlements of your campaign world lie meadows, forests, deserts, mountain ranges, oceans, and other tracts of wilderness waiting to be traversed. Bringing wilderness areas to life can be a fun part of your game, but for you and your players, both for you and your players, the following two approaches work particularly well, and they give us two approaches to wilderness travel. They give us the travel montage, and they give us the hour-by-hour approach. So, Teos, I'm going to take a little sip here, and I'm going to let you give your thoughts on this so far. Yeah, so, I mean, I think these are generally solid. Like, I I love this chapter because it's packed full of information, and and the information is all good. Um, I think that, so they talk about the travel montage approach, and the idea is here, you're kind of just going through and saying what happened. You're not playing it out. You're not doing 
uh, details. You're just sort of saying what happened. And, and they say the, the good piece of advice they give is don't just say, you know, nothing happened as you walked through this area. You cover 20 miles, nothing happened. Don't say that. Instead, talk about the waterfall that you saw and the strange rock formation and a few other details to make it interesting. And that's great. Um, and they talk about using the landscape to set mood and tone, some pieces like that. I think that's all decent. Um, I think that it could be a little more what they what I don't. And, you know, and then they say the hour by hour approach, which is like um, you're going to go through and probably have encounters and you're going to have a marching order and you're going to play things out. Uh, again, good advice. It doesn't really tell me why I'm using one approach or the other uh, and what specifically to expect to do with these, how to make them better, what pitfalls are there. And, and I just kind of think, Sean, that in today's world, as much as I like writing, reading all this text, I don't know that everybody does, especially newer readers, younger readers, and whether it, it should be a little more, again, how-to based and, and tip based here. What do you think? At first blush, this travel montage uh, suggestion seems perfectly like, again, like a no brainer. This seems like the perfect way to do it. And I can see how that might seem true. In practice, often it doesn't add enough to the game to make it worthwhile. Mm -hmm. I see it as in American literature, the old Hemingway versus Faulkner dichotomy. Do you use the least amount of words possible to reach your goal or the most amount of words possible to create the experience, to, to elicit the feelings and tell the story that you're trying to tell? Both are okay, but what is the goal? With Hemingway, the goal is to hit that emotional hard with the most in the tersest way possible. Mm -hmm. With Faulkner, it's to tell it in the most elaborate, strange, roundabout way where you are on a roller coaster and you hopefully will enjoy the ride and find that thread that gets to where you're going, right? The the chapter in As I Lie Dying where it says my mother is a fish. Uh, and and it's, it's, so, it's so strange and it's so... And all it's saying is the mother's dead and the little kid doesn't understand what's going on, but they drilled a hole in the coffin. And so therefore he thinks that it's like a, you know, it's, you know, it's this strange child's logic to, to try to figure out the, the child's interpretation of what's happening. Yeah. Uh, so this, this is like that. Uh, it, it's also the box text problem of, what do you need to tell? So the way I see this is the players know that they're marching from here to there, and there they are going to fight the Lich in the Lich's Tower. So do you say you leave the town, you're at the Lich's Tower, or do you give some dialogue, some description as they travel? And for my class and in blogs, I have put up a, here's a description of this box text that describes your journey, which is exactly what this is telling you mm -hmm. to do. And as I teach or as I discuss it, we will discuss the finer points of this word versus that word, or do, should you do this or should you do that? And a lot of people read that box text and they say, yeah, it's fine. That, that's good. 
It's cool. It's very evocative. I understand it. But then as we pick up, pick it apart, as we say, do you really need to say this? Do you really? Some people come to the conclusion now, you know, I'd rather have you just say, and you're at the Lich's Tower. Mm. Neither is right. Neither is wrong. Both of them are ways that you could handle things. But it goes back to the point I was talking about in our um, listener corner, which is sometimes people, when they hear players, when they hear a description, want it to be important. They want it to have a bigger meaning than just there. So the one example from the, the book, from the DMG, was the halfling finds a stone that looks like something. It's a weird example. If, for, for many of my players, you know, as you read it, like, okay, yeah, that's cool. It's a kind of a neat little thing. Well, for many of my players that I've had, I'm going to be spending the next half hour talking about that stone. <laughs> Unless I literally say the stone means nothing. It's just a stone, which defeats the purpose of using it in the first place. Because the players, I cast detect magic on the stone. <laughs> well, you don't need to because it's not magical. Well, I look, do I make a history check? Do I, right? It turns into this thing that's bigger. And in the end, in the end, it can spur a good story. Mm-hmm. But you have to then work toward that, which yeah. some people love to do and some people don't want to do. Or you're disappointing the player by saying, yeah, it's just a stone. It, it doesn't even Well, exist. why did you, you tell me about the stone it. in the yeah. first place? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and I, that's where I would like to step back and, and, and think of this differently, right? In that when, when I'm creating a travel montage, either in my campaign or for written work, I'm looking at what are the story beats? What is the story arc that's in play? What should fill the space here, right? There is a void that we must fill. So we we need to paint the canvas a certain way to establish whatever it is that's going to happen. If the wilderness matters, then things must happen in some way. Or if characterizing the wilderness, it all should matter, then we must characterize in a certain way. And so it's one of the things that I don't like about Mm -hmm. what's set up here and in, in the ensuing sections is there an assumption that you can just do whatever. You can just chuck in a monument. You can just describe a waterfall. You can do whatever. But you should think about what the setting is like and then model it accordingly. Because if the area is really dry, then there is no waterfall and should not be, right? If it's not swampy, there's no yeah. quicksand, if there, you know, and so on. Um, and, and that's where what I really think the benefit, you know, when I've played great games involving overland travel, it's because every scene that was described helped me understand the nature of the world that was in and fed into the overall campaign and so on, right? Like if, if this is like, like in Cholt, right? Which is probably one of the ones that folks understand the best through Tomb of Annihilation, you are expecting an inhospitable jungle. So you want to have Mm -hmm. encounters with dinosaurs. If you hand wave all the travel and nobody meets any of these dangers, it won't make sense. It needs to have this feeling of, of hazards. Uh, there should be the undead in the undead region, and the, and the dinosaurs should happen, and there should be some difficulty of moving through this moist, jungly landscape, because that then creates that expression and that feeling and that experience that's so important to 
the overall play, right? Yeah. Oh, I, I totally agree. And I think that's what you think about when you do your travel montage is not only what is the, the atmosphere, what's that that I'm trying to convey, but what clues, even if they're just very vague and evocative of a mood or a type of thing, uh, we go back to Edgar Allan Poe's unity of effect. If the first thing that the characters hit when they go toward the Lich's tower is a trap that shoots out poison, maybe describe the poisonous vapors coming off the, the, the plants throughout the, the forest as they come here. That puts poison in their mind. And so when the poison trap goes off, even if they don't go, aha, poison plus poison, right? at least there's that little part of their brain where poison makes sense here. So that's, you know, that's one way you can use this travel montage to do more than one thing. Yeah. Have more than one purpose to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like in Tomb of Annihilation, when you go through all these dangers and then you reach the camp that, and you might end up at the camp that has been destroyed, that was a, a Order of the Gauntlet camp. Uh, well, now it makes sense. This is so dangerous. This camp fell apart. Or you reach the next camp they have and it's, under all of this pressure and about and, and could fall without your help. And that all makes sense because of the things you've gone through, right? Like that's, it creates that mm-hmm. really great feeling that, that ties it all together and it feels cohesive. And if you were to hand wave that without proper attention, you wouldn't experience it. Right. And, and that's, that's where I think between these two approaches, there should be better instruction instruction here as to how to choose. It's fine to have these two approaches. They're good approaches, yeah. but but you want to know why you're doing it and what, what the goals are of all this, right? What are the goals for your travel? Like start, start mm-hmm. with the questions, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this is talking about moving from one place to another, where, you know, you're going to me, this doesn't even start to address the hex crawl sort of mm-hmm. game that one might right. play where the, the, the travel is the goal, not, you know, the, the means to get to your goal. Uh, and that's a whole, whole other thing. Yeah. And um, that we'll talk about we that as we have in the of... past, when we get to that chapter that covers it, uh, which is part of the problem here is that this, as we, as we talked about in our exploration episodes uh, in 2020, believe it or not, um, there is a big difference wow. between the, what part of the content is in the player's handbook uh, on how to move around in groups um, which they kind of talk about here, like they'll mention the navigator, but they won't refer you to where to look to find those rules. Uh, and then you have the other chapter mm-hmm. that's providing you with actual like sort of hex crawl type information. So it's it's really, it's all split up, which makes it harder to, to do properly here for them. Yeah. Yeah. It, I want to just sidetrack here in um, the Ghostfire Gaming book, Aurora Age mm-hmm. of Desolation exploration and travel is is a really important linchpin of the game because civilization has collapsed so there is no place that's safe you may be in a settlement that seems safe but before long you're probably going to have to move so mapping and exploring is a is the point of the game in a lot of cases so we've made a very robust system to handle this in a bit of a more gamified way. 
there's still random tables you can roll, but you know, getting rumors of what might be in the next territory over and then exploring that to see if these rumors or your observations are true and coming across common or uncommon or even secret locations Mm -hmm. and then having to do a goal within those locations to either fortify it or to clear it or to just mark it as avoid at all costs so then when when settlers move in that direction they know that it's either safe or might be safe or is definitely not safe so there's this whole and there's sheets uh like worksheets that you as the dm can mark off what these things are how dangerous they are, whether the threat level is raised or lowered thanks to the characters going through there. Um, it's it's a pretty cool system that we started from this chapter and then moved it into a more gamified and structured way. So if you uh, enjoy that sort of play, Aurora Age of Desolation is now available on DriveThru. So you can just search under uh, Ghostfire Gaming Aurora Age of uh, desolation and you can check it out fantastic and again on drive through huh that's great mm-hmm. yep uh so what else uh the the mapping talks about as teo said we talked about all of this already a couple years ago uh, so you can go back and listen to those which will cover all of this more in depth but we get uh ways it tells us that wilderness can be overwhelming uh Treat it like it has rails or roads. Uh, Travel uh, naturally favors common approaches and paths. They talk about movement on the map. As soon as I get to this part, my mind starts spinning, and I'm like, I just want to, I just want to create an adventure and and run it. I I don't want all of this uh, unless you're going to tell me exactly how to do it. Well, and I think that's where, again, they don't ask, they're not asking questions of the would-be author, you know, of of what is, because that's what it starts with. Like, you're going to create a map. What's, what are you trying to accomplish with this map, right? And and so yeah. that the, the movement drives, and they have a good point that's saying, you know, like, don't, you don't have to be overwhelmed, because often there will be an obvious path. There'll be a sort of, you know, the channel between the mountains or whatever. Um, and mm-hmm. that's fair. Plus, you can have guides or any number of things. But there's just sort of this assumption that you will make a map. Uh, and they talk about, often in their examples, a 50-mile area. But they don't really say how big it should be. And then they're just like, hey, here's your movement, uh, uh, which they don't have the movement rules here. Those are elsewhere. <laughs> but they talk about you're either using right. a province scale for hour-by-hour approach, which I think this is really interesting to tie this into the previous conversation. Hour by hour would go with a province Mm -hmm. scale of a hex equals one mile. Several days or montage would go with a kingdom scale of a hex equals six miles. And we had a whole discussion about this before on our Patreon discord. So I kind of raised it again, especially Graham Ward, who had some thoughts. I'm like, you had some thoughts on this. And he was saying um, six miles per hex works really well because the travel timetables are multiples of six. You can travel 18, 24, or 30 miles per day based on the pace. So three miles or six miles to hex works really well, but he points out that Wizards of the Coast Adventures, despite this one or six mile example in the DMG, tend to be five or 10 miles per hex. And that makes your math very hard because you're moving partly through a hex, Mm -hmm. right? 
So I thought that was yeah. an interesting thing to think about. And, and, and I, I mean, I just don't even know that this is the right, the, the, I don't think the right questions are being asked here as to what a DM is trying to take on. Mm-hmm. And then, and then we get, I don't know, do you want to say anything or do should we go into wilderness features? Let's go right into wilderness features. Yeah. So we get, uh, no wilderness map is complete without a few settlements, strongholds, etc. cetera. Uh, and usually have a dozen features over an area roughly 50 miles across. And then we just get like lists and tables of these types of features. And I thought these were very interesting features, Sean. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I, I'm sort of at a loss. as as Even now, as I look about... You know, look about these uh, these features. I want to put something cool and and evocative to the overall campaign that I'm running. So unless I'm just doing a let's do it now via via hex crawl, um, I'm sort of this this chapter doesn't do me much good. Yeah. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, yeah, because these features are monster lairs, monuments, ruins, settlements, strongholds, weird locales. And those are cool things to consider for a map, although they completely lack anything natural, right? Which is really interesting for wilderness features, right. and all of them are like things people made or creatures living there. But also, mm-hmm. again, what, what what is the point of your wilderness? What's the story it's making? Because those features mm-hmm. need to capture those pieces, right? If you're traveling through, say, Icewind from Icewind Dale to some mountain, right? Um, mm-hmm. There aren't a lot of features, and that's sort of the point. But you can establish the story by having a few, you know, one or two things that they encounter along the way, and and that creates the interest in the story but but you have to start with what even is the premise you don't just roll on a monuments table and mm-hmm. chuck it in the middle of this snow between Icewind Dale and <laughs> one of the mountains right yeah yeah and it, part of me says well for each of these at least give a a small description so a, a game master might get right we see uh a wishing well mm-hmm. roll 11 of a d20 for weird locales so you're in icewind dale you're traveling from one of the 10 towns up into the mountains and there's a wishing well here in the middle of nowhere in the ice okay mm-hmm. um give me give me i want to say like okay give me a little chunk about how how could i use this wishing well and but then later when we talk about settlements they they do that but it's really it's like drunk people you might find on the street in a settlement and drunk is one of them and i'm like okay and oh they're going to give me a further explanation and it says you know you see an intoxicated individual staggering down the road and i'm like i i you have described to me what a drunk is uh in in your specific terms that doesn't help me as the game master give that person a story or tell me how it might be cool to interact with that person for the player, regardless of the type of adventure that I'm running. 
And in spite and it just, of the it's, fact the, that it's not there, Hamlet gives us such a great drunk in its adventure, mm-hmm. right? That, that yeah. teaches us right. the value of what a drunk person can be. What's his name? Otis, right? Yeah. Otis. And that's just, just, you know, like. Oh, it's Elmo. It's Elmo. It's Elmo. Yeah. His brother's Otis. Brother's yeah. Otis. You know, we should know better that, 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 that like, that's the, the point is why these things exist on the map not put a thing on the map like like i think this is almost i think what it is because i know they know right like the the designers who wrote this know what great play looks like but i think they're making the assumptions that the dm will do fun things with these and choose the appropriate things and so on but what ends up feeling is like just put a bunch of candy on your map and in some generic world that has no verisimilitude but that that's not what you want right you want to think through what would make sense and what weaves the story in and how to place things in and and, and yeah and and i think that's all these tables to me it's why i prefer those you know travel montage or hour by hour where it's just text because at least it's contextual text these things to me create jarring mm-hmm. role results that don't come with the instructions that should be there mm-hmm. uh so you have a map and you have put things on the map. And now we're going to talk about surviving on that map with wilderness survival. Um, what does the dungeon master's guide tell us can be there to pr- provide danger other than monsters um, weather. So we get a table for temperature, winds, precipitation, um, basic rules for extreme cold, extreme heat, wind for precipitation, um, later books add something like avalanche and don't give us started <laughs> on that, or especially Teos, um, other natural hazards. Uh, we, we talk about high altitudes, um, some of the hazards in the wilderness, like desecrated ground and frigid water and quicksand and razor vine and slippery ice and thin ice. Uh, all good stuff. Mm-hmm. All good stuff. All stuff that you can definitely use, uh, you know, in not only travel but just in general in your adventures you could have the the drew uh the lich's tower being surrounded by razor vine and and so on um we get rules for foraging and becoming lost and it, it's it's all good i think Th- this at least is something i can use as the dm it might help answer a question for me of i'm having uh a swamp adventure and I want to use quicksand. How do I do that? Oh, yep. here it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else about that wilderness survival chapter that caught your eye? No, I, I think it's, it's reasonable. Um, you know, there are some pieces that it could do instruction wise to say, you know, uh, remember that a ranger might have favored terrain and just sort of invalidate getting lost. And, and, and the number of bits like that, that could be helpful. Mm-hmm foraging you know when's the last time foraging came up it seldom comes up why because we're usually not running that kind of campaign so speaking to that probably makes sense a bit right like Mm -hmm. foraging works in this type of a campaign if you want to do that you'll have to make sure they're running out of resources so they are forced to forage because otherwise nobody's going to (laughs) forage yeah it's very true uh again we talked about this way back in 2020 so you can go back and listen to a more in-depth version of all of this. Next, we get a talk of settlements. 
a village, town, or city makes an excellent backdrop for an adventure. The adventurers might be called on to track down a criminal who's gone into hiding, solve a murder, uh, blood and Baldur's Gate, take out a gang of were-rats or doppelgangers, or protect a settlement under siege. When creating a settlement for your campaign, focus on locations that are most relevant to the adventure. There's some good idea. That's that's a good thought. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about naming every street and identifying the inhabitants of every building. So with that, we get immediately tables. Mm-hmm. Who would have thought? Uh, the tables are, well, they start they start off bad and then get a little better. Uh, because what's the very first thing that this settlement table uh, tells us? What can we roll for? Yes, Teos. We can roll to learn the race relations of a settlement. Indeed. By the way, Sean, your camera seems to have faded. Yeah, race relations as the first table was just jarring. Like, what? What? Yeah. Why am I injecting that into my game without some kind of <laughs> discussion? Right. Yeah. And only now the one, rest of them the make perfect the sense. And want the ten is harmony. <laughs> Yeah, everything everything else is about oppression. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, if if that is what your campaign you know wants and your players want to discuss, great. For those of us who want to keep race relations uh, as something that we have to deal with in the real world and don't want it in our fantasy, then this table is obviously not for you unless you always roll a ten or lower. But the rest of the charts talk about things that sort of you would expect when you are dealing with a settlement. Who's the ruler? What's the status of the ruler? What are some notable traits? Uh, It's got a massive statue or monument. It's a site of many battles, right? Those sorts of things. What is it known for? Rude people, decadence, powerful guilds. Okay, cool. And the current calamity. Um, going from one to twenty, from suspected vampire infestation to religious sects struggling for power, uh, so things that, like the other tables, if you know what you want, you don't need the table. The table could spur some good thoughts, but maybe talk a little bit more about each of these things and how they might work well in an adventure sort of going back to this theme that we've hit many, many times over this chapter and over this entire book. I mean, and I think this is any, like, any thoughts there? Yeah. It's, it's a little bit like when you're watching a movie and there's a scene and you're like, well, that's fun, but it doesn't really work with the rest of the movie. And, and I think that's what the danger of these tables, right? That you'll just chuck in a settlement that they find in the wilderness and you're going to have this thing about how they're dealing with a plague or whatever. And that's perfectly fine. But if your story is not one where plague really fits, then it feels like it's just a weird episode in the story that just, you know, the plague episode. And, and it doesn't hit the arc or the theme. And, and so a little guidance on how mm-hmm. to choose these things would be helpful. Um, the other thing is, is you know, some stories work for certain sizes of settlements. And the amount of time you want to spend mm-hmm. there, uh, and some don't. And so you want to tailor these options. You, you know, you don't need a mysterious anonymous cabal as the ruler when you're just passing through. <laughs> like that's too much, right? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> right. you don't care. Yeah. You need to get out of here, like not, you know. And so 
so that's where it's finding what that 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 cadence should be that that I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Then we get not only random settlement types, but random buildings and tables for the random buildings. It could be a residence. It could be a religious building, it could be a tavern, it could be a warehouse, or it could be a shop. And then there are subtables for each of those particular kinds. Is the residence an orphanage, an orphanage or a lavish guarded mansion? Is the religious building an abandoned shrine or a temple to a good or neutral deity? Is the tavern a low-key quiet bar or a members-only club? You want a random ta uh, tavern name? We got the generator just for you. Quick tails, pick a number, 1 to 20. 5. Pick another number, 1 to 20. 17. It is the Prancing Seder that we are now going to enter. Lovely. Yeah, that's it's, really fun. The, I that's would have great. liked, to, if, if, you, if you had said 13 for the second one, it would have been the Prancing Horde, <laughs> which I believe... Uh, is is the is the name of any dance that my game group does? Uh, I like that. And I like yeah, that some of them know, when fun, you read right stuff. across, like the prancing pony, are um, you know things yeah. that 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 are that are actually found in in literature or games. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. uh, warehouses, anything from abandoned to secret smugglers den, etc. You get the idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that one thing that I would have liked here is if they just said, like, they kind of talk about, like, in a chase, you need to detail something. Yes, and that's great. For a chase, these kinds of tables are great. But that is a different process than if you're populating this town. Then you're not just going to randomly put something in there. You might want to roll a certain number of buildings out and then construct them in a way, which is, I think, what they then try to get to in the mapping a settlement part. I, I think that that covers pretty much what we want to talk about today mm -hmm. because we still have urban encounters, unusual environments and traps, which probably could each be their own segment, but I think we can yeah. wrap these up next week. Sounds good. All right. In that case, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our patrons who keep the lights on for us here. Um, if you are a master of dungeon supporter, we tip our hat to you, our brimless hat. Um, if you are a Master of Realms supporter, you have our thanks in our show notes every week. And if you are a Master of the Multiverse patron, well, here's a shout out just for you. Keith Aman of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst. Brian King, sorry I missed you at Origins, Brian. Jim Klingler at AKA DM Prime Mover. Travis Lee, Chad Lynch, the Mathemagician. Eric Mengi, the Micro Ant. Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Post Fiction RPG Audio. Chance Russo at Drago Russo. Ross Sandberg, Krishna Simone, say I didn't see you at Origins, but I know you were there. Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you so much for our patrons. Thank you so much to our listeners. And if you're a listener who likes the show, please do consider supporting us via our Patreon at patreon.com 
slash mastering DD. And also, if you get a chance, leave us a review on Apple Podcast um, or subscribe via YouTube if you want to subscribe to us and see us in all our glory. So, Teos, where can people find you on the internet? Alphastream.org. I also hang out on Mastodon, uh, begrudgingly on Twitter. Where do we find you, Sean? Mm-hmm. Uh, also on Twitter at Sean Merwin. The show itself is on Twitter at Mastering D&D, and the show is on Mastodon at Dice Camp. You can join our community via Patreon to ask your questions there. You also get access to our Discord, where we have many emphatic and enlightening conversations and you can leave comments for us on the mastering dungeons youtube channel on each and every one of our episodes so teos we've got a show here we talked about some more adventure environments what are we going to do now hmm. uh well let's wander into one of those environments and get mauled by owlbears i'm gonna you can catch me at the prancing horde later today <laughs> if you survive the owlbears of course.